0: Inner voice. A heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Break free from the forces holding you back get the life you deserve, eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, decrease depression, and start living your full potential. Thousands have used Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory, an evidence-based behavioral health breakthrough with incredible life-changing results, getting rid of past trauma, having fulfilling relationships, increasing earnings, and living their best life. Now, the Fujian app is available to everyone. The app is Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory in the palm of your hand. Download the Fujian app today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast, a heartfelt chat with me, Dr. Fujan Zane. I'm a psychotherapist and author, the originator of the awareness integration theory and the Fujian app, where you can get the awareness integration theory in every area of your life um, at the time that you could just do it at ease whenever you want to. And many of you have asked about the books um, in integration awareness integration theory. Go to awarenessintegration.com and look at the books. There's Life Reset, which is for you who love to do self help books and do your own journaling. You can get um, awareness integration therapy for all your wonderful counselors, mental health workers. Um, psychotherapists, um, life coaches who want to do this method with your clientele, you can also be certified, um, in this method, and your name will be in um, put in as a provider in the awarenessintegration.com and Fujian app, and we also have the book Intentional Parenting, which is for all of you wonderful parents, teachers, grandparents, whomever is raising kids. And uh, you can get that book and look at every chapter relating to the age of your child and know how through the awareness integration theory, um, work and raise your child in the best of their capacity and capability. So nice to be with all of you today. And today in this episode, I'm so excited to chat with Sylvia uh, Dutkevich. She is a licensed um, clinical social worker She's the president and the founder of Critical Therapy Institute. As a trained psychotherapist, she created critical therapy on perceiving a need for the theory and practice of psychology to reflect how race, class, gender, and religion interests with psychological conflicts appear in therapy. She's a founding board member of Black Women's Blueprint and a member of the Physicians for Human Rights Asylum Network, where she conducts psychological evaluations documenting evidence of torture and uh, persecution for survivors fleeting danger in the home countries. She trained um, at uh, Bellevue NYU Survivors of Torture Program, the Parent Child Center of New York Psychoanalytic Society, and New York Freudian Society. She has a master's degree in social work from New York University and a master's degree in psychology from the New School and a master's degree in religious studies and political science from Fordham University. She's lectured and presented throughout the country on critical therapy, including Fordham and New York um, University, NYU, and has been featured in Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, The Guardian, International Business Times, and Women's Health. So we talked about her book, uh, Critical Therapy, and how um, the relationship that you have within the psychotherapy can really support you in all around of who you are addressing some of the societal political policies that affect every single one of us. And how the relationship that you create can really not only heal you, but take that healing and bridge it into all other areas of your life so i had a great conversation with her and i hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as i did now subscribe to this podcast my youtube channel and connect with me through my website fujonzain.com or go to the um, app fujon app you can also go to fujon.com or any of the social medias share with me your thoughts I love, love, love to hear from you um, because what you say to me, who you want to hear from, all the conversations and topics that you want to hear about um, will be here if you share with me what you want. So now without further ado, here's Sylvia Dutkevich. Welcome to the show, Sylvia. Everyone, Sylvia Dudkevich. As I shared with you, she is uh, the founder of Clinical Therapy Institute, which I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Um, I got your book, Clinical Therapy, Critical
1: Critical
0: Therapy. It was interesting to me where I saw, you know, I've been a therapist for 30 years and I've kind of gone to, you know, behavioral therapies and cognitive therapies, emotional therapies. I created my own um, institute and a therapy model, the awareness integration therapy. One of the things that I really, really enjoyed as I was um, reading about um, critical therapy had to do with kind of bringing an angle of what we truly live into the world as a human being who relates to the world and the world relates to us. So it's not, you know, sometimes psychotherapy is dealt with, which is like, it's only the balloon inside that you, you know, thinking, feeling, and all of that, which it's not accurate. It is a constant relatedness with the world and the way it is. And then you brought these beautiful constructs of how we deal with power, um, not only from a family construct, but also from a society construct. So it was really beautiful to read and see and look at. Um, Share with us, how come, how come that angle for you?
1: Well, thanks for reading the book. You know, I'm always uh, sort of um, pleased to hear that people have read it, liked it. I always look for constructive criticism as well. I've learned that we grow as long as we ask questions and we don't get too set in our ways. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated question. I mean, I don't know, you know. How much is it a personal narrative as well as a political one? Because the personal is always political, how I've come to critical therapy. Um, I do know that I had trained um, in psychoanalytic theory. That was my home. And I always found that it was missing something. And especially uh, then going to social work school and being interested in social justice and how systemic oppression influences and interact with mental health issues was really fascinating. And yet, we only talk about it on the level of theory. We talk about it either, you know, I almost feel like there's two schools of thought or two really divergent paths. There is the clinical path, which is often about your intra problems, you know, why your mom hit you and what did that mean for you and how you show up in the world. And there is the systemic social work analysis of how systems can be oppressive or liberatory. And yet, within the psychotherapy hour, those two schools of thought or paths never actually meet. Um, And I think that it is important as a therapist to be aware that there is systemic problems that influence one mental one's mental health and there's also the importance of analyzing intrapsychic problems so you have to connect the two now why i say it's also a personal journey is because you know i um i am an immigrant i came from romania i came from my parents came here as we escaped one of the most brutal dictatorships in eastern europe um And it's not surprising that at some point I wanted to be a therapist and work with torture survivors. I wanted to work with people who escaped political persecution. And the more I got into that work, the more I realized that post-traumatic stress disorder and PTSD actually happens to um, women mostly in their homes. And it's something that we don't talk about. We don't talk about domestic violence. We don't talk about childhood sexual abuse. So I actually shifted my sort of studies and uh, the population I worked with, with men who escaped, you know, and not just women, but men, but mostly, unfortunately, still women who have escaped these horror stories. And that's how I realized that access to, you know, money, um, your race, your gender, and all these things influence and interact with your mental health. And I wanted to bring that into the psychotherapeutic hour. And you have to analyze power, right? You cannot deal with mental health issues without looking at political issues. And you cannot look at political issues without looking at power dynamics. Um, And what I mean by power is our ability to change the world and the systems within the world that give us that ability or, or curtail that ability.
0: There's so much there to unpack uh, on what you said. Um, I'm an immigrant. Obviously, I I come from Iran. Um, I moved when I was 12 alone. So I was, you know, and we have the women's movement right now going in Iran. So um, I also, like you said, worked a lot with refugees uh, that went from Afghanistan or Iran to Turkey Um, and um, and greece and worked with them in the camp and and as they immigrant immigrate to california i've worked a lot with them and you are still right on and accurate about the experience and the experience of sometimes the um the learned helplessness Mm -hmm. that women and men um, in different societies are raised with and um they survive so most of psychotherapy has been and how to survive, and um, how to gain, how to gain within the system versus, exactly. you know, how do you have the power to shift the system? And I think that takes well. First, you got to figure out how to gain yourself within a system before you could take the in the shift. But there was another um, awesome thing you just said, which is if we are not. Aware of the systematic um, oppression that is, um, I remember I was in India with a group of African Americans, where um, you know one um, woman was sharing with us about the systemic um, oppression that was there, and I had no idea. And she started sharing with me so many books and videos, and uh, and I started educating myself to know what it is, because, you know, people can stereotype, people can share and talk about a culture in a particular way. But if there's no understanding of how trauma and messages, um, you know, move intergenerationally to the next and next level, and we're sometimes shocked about why is a group of people have more of insights, symptomology or an illness or a certain behavior. And, um, you know, we we start looking at that and then how to support uh, that group of not only supporting themselves and rising above to be living their best, but also when you attach it and link it to the bigger picture, the person also sees themselves within a society and not so isolated.
1: Yes. And and the truth is ideology or values, they're they are already present in the clinical hour. There's this myth that we've been taught as therapists to believe that somehow if we don't invite the political or if we don't bring the um, issues that interact with our systemic world, somehow they're non-existent, but they're already, already present. The fact that we don't talk about it means as therapists more often than not is that we align ourselves with. With the status quo. And then our patients somehow, consciously or unconsciously, know not to talk about those things, know how not to bring certain parts of their identities into the therapy. And then it's a missed opportunity to analyze things, but ultimately it's a missed opportunity for healing. You can't, for example, you know, be a woman and not talk about sexism or misogyny in therapy because it's always already there. You can be a person of color and not address racism. But what I would go a step further and say is that it is also imperative, you know, for a person, for me, for example, right? I'm this white lady. If I have a patient who happens to be white, that's sitting across from me, racism is already present anyway. Just because it doesn't impact us the same way and we have certain privileges, it doesn't mean we shouldn't address those privileges because it's important to analyze how those privileges have made us who we are today, how they've contributed either positively or negatively on who we are in the world and how we show up in the world.
0: Can you share um, in your book that the therapeutic relationship and the alliance that is there it's um, some sort of a representative of all the relationships that gets created so how do you um uh, how do you bring that relationship that is here within the session with two people and relate that uh to others is it more like you watch what's not working and then relate it and then give skills and then share this with the other areas of life
1: so yes and and the relationships the relationship is essential i believe to healing uh because most of our Neuroses happened with other people. Most of our wounds happen in connection with others because we're human beings. Um, And it is through a relationship that one gets to heal. What we've done in critical therapy is that the relationship develops over time. It also looks very different over time. In the first stage of critical therapy, and sometimes the stages are not linear, but more often than not, they are So in the first stage of critical therapy, we start off very sort of psychoanalytically or psychodynamically where we are the person that reveals a little, very little about ourselves and our patients sort of see us as an authority figure. Why we do this is because we discover that the transference gets to be activated much quicker this way. I also think it says something about the world we live in. It says something about parenting. It is no wonder that our patients and all of us respond to this type of being in the world because our first authority, quote unquote, figures, which are our parents, more often than not exert power over us, right? We're not very collaborative with kids. That's We still have a long way to go on that. Um, so in the first stage of critical therapy, there is a power over, right? Right. And at that point, you know, the person who comes to therapy sees us or sees me as the therapist who has all the answers and so forth. Now, as and that enables me to look at their relationship dynamics, how they show up in other relationships, because they know very little about me, how they interact you know, inter, um, psychically but also interpersonally, right? How do they respond to certain things? And then as the relationship sort of develops and we move on, we move to a second stage, which is, you know, think about the feminist movement in the 70s of critical consciousness, of really analyzing our relationship with each other, of analyzing power dynamics within the therapeutic hour, but also outside the therapeutic hour. This is a very important step because, you know, as as we know, especially for people who have been oppressed and marginalized, power is something that one usurps, some, something that one has to claim. No one empowers anyone. That's very paternalistic, right? It's sort of like, how do I wrestle with power? How do I reckon? How do I get to discuss this? And then as we do that work, we move towards the last stance of critical therapy, which is a more collaborative stance. And it's about, think about Paulo Freire, who was an educator in Latin America, who talked about two people meeting to dialogue about the world. And that's where we learn about how people can share space together. How do we negotiate? Most of us don't, we don't have very good example of negotiations in relationship. And it feels like our culture is more and more interested in being right rather than being collaborative and rather than having a consensus. So I feel that if you can do it in therapy, if you could have these difficult conversations, if you could reckon with very important and complicated issues with one person, and if you could trust one person, then you have that blueprint to do it with other people in your life.
0: This was very much the um, the experience I had, um, let's say four, three, four years ago, when um Trump was uh, a president and you had every single household getting at each other's throat. <laughs> Uh, because of these conversations friendships were breaking up family members were breaking up um and I remember the conversations in the therapy room was uh intense mm-hmm. would we'll show up and exactly what you said and knowing how to be with another person's ideology it becomes so important And then again, obviously I see a lot of you know immigrants and Iranians where, because of the new movement, there's again a hype. You know, people get angry at each other and um, start fighting with each other out there. And this concept of having the ability to be with a controversial conversation, which it it also is impacting you. So it's not mm-hmm. like you know, oh, we're just going to talk about theory about another space. No, it actually is a controversial conversation that is happening here now and among people who are within your community and uh, as I hear you you're saying if if in a safe space that conversation not only is shared but the skills of negotiative listening and communicating is practiced then that same skill can be bridged into other realms of life
1: Yes. And I think that starts with a personal relationship from the people that you love, from your children, from your parents and so forth. And it morphs and moves out towards, you know, your friends, your politicians and and so forth. We are we are no longer a society. I don't know if we've ever been, but for sure, we're not a society that could tolerate discomfort, but also that could tolerate opinions that are different than ours. And what I often say is that it is important to be able to discuss things so we could all learn from each other. I don't think we we know how to do it. I don't think any government, I don't think any side of the aisle knows how what's the right way and we're all happy. So capitalism has failed most of us. Um, No other system seems to be working that great anyway. So why don't we try to invent something new rather than always go back to old ideas and old way of being in the world that have left so many people behind?
0: You say personal is political. Share why. To me and to many people, these are so different, although every single human being is impacted by the politics and policies that they live in and across the world. Um, but where is it that there's a line between someone who so there's a difference between every human being is political versus there's political activism, there's political, um, information and and kind of like um, education, let's say, if I'm educating myself across it? Um, or is it just someone who's living their life and getting impacted by it, but not necessarily one have educated themselves about it, nor that, you know, it feels that it has any impact on it? Now, in some countries where you actually do get to vote and your vote matters, Obviously education around it and activism around it and all of that makes a lot more sense in countries that you really have no um you really have no point or there's no way that you can be directly. Definitely you could do things non-directly, but directly you don't have access to that. Um then are you only a receiver of it, or are you also in any factor an influencer on it?
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question. I also, it brings up something that I struggle with whenever I talk about, you know, when I say we invite the political, because I don't know if political is the right word. And I still struggle with what is the right word? Because the word, and I, you know, I want to say maybe it's human rights, but it's not quite that. What or policies, what we mean by that, in very clear examples here in the United States, our access to childcare, our access to, you know, medical insurance, our access to a living wage impacts in a very real and tangible way our mental health. For example, I have patients who, because of the precarity of their work, if they work in certain jobs, they don't actually get their weekly schedule till at the end of the week. So it's even, it's difficult to to schedule a psychotherapy session because we can't have it every Monday at five, for example, because you don't know your schedule, but it's difficult to schedule anything in your life. If, if we stopped for a second and thought, what can that do to your mental health? What can that do to your sense of agency in the world? And yet, we don't ever say it that way because people often say, I don't want to talk about politics Oh, I don't want to talk about these things. How does it impact me? So maybe it's not politics as in the big P, but politics as in the small policies that we created, the ideology that that we, we sort of cling to. One of the things I, I've realized in doing this work more and more is that sometimes the values that we think we hold in our heads, we don't actually hold in our hearts. And this is why sometimes what we say we want or how we want to show up in the world doesn't match how we how we show up in the world. And what I, you know, a simple example of that is, you know, I have, I have a patient who, you know, sort of, she is a new mom. She wanted to stay home with her child. She said this, she's a feminist. She's like, this is going to be one of the most important jobs I'll be doing. I want to do this. She has a child two months in, we sit down, we talk about her sense of worthlessness. I'm not producing anything because Although the ideology in her head intellectually is like, no, motherhood is really important. It's a choice I have. This is, I'm, you know, creating the new generation of people and so forth. In our hearts, we've learned that "Mm, it's not really valued work. You should be producing something. You should create something. You should be sort of, you know, the, the man who, you know, goes out there and makes, you know, millions of dollars. So this is why this work, I think is important to do in psychotherapy because it's not just this out there. It's always within us. And the way we live our lives sometimes are against our interests because we are so married, quote unquote, to these ideologies or these values that don't actually represent our interests.
0: So what I hear from you when you're using the political term is more how the societal structures that are created, whether due to public policies or uh, you know corporate policies or um, political standing, um, it impacts us in so many different layers. And if we are not necessarily aware of the impact,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: not only that we don't know how to deal with it, sometimes we take it very personal as if there's something wrong with us. And knowing where the duality of what's inside, what the need is inside versus the the messages and the structures that the external world puts us. And then we look at it as something wrong with me versus, yes. no, I'm okay. And I'm. it's natural for me to have these emotions and thoughts and struggles with a system that doesn't necessarily work for me. Now, maybe the system works for others and maybe it's kind of a system that needs to handle all different preferences might be hard to come by. Because I remember when you were talking about, there was a lot of research that came about that the brain of a teenager it needs so much sleep and usually they're more nocturnal. So this concept of waking them up at six o'clock I in the morning that. and having them be, you know, be at their first Uh, you know, educational hour at eight o'clock in the morning just doesn't work, you know, and that's why so many teenagers are falling off uh, from going to high school or they're having so many disasters because they're not having enough sleep because they're nocturnal, you know, from on this side, they want to stay up until 12 because their brain changes at that time. That's just a biological factor. However, with, with all of this knowledge, The concept of changing the school system that also related to a work system where their parents had to put them at a school where they had to go to work and be at work between eight and nine, well, it was going to create a huge chaos in the whole system. So it's like, eh, too bad, too much, forget it. We're just not going to change anything. And then that's where you can see where the need, a biological need, an emotional need Um, a phase of life need is probably going to, you know, kind of clash with Mm -hmm. a whole society system that is moving along in a certain way. And then the the knowledge of where do I begin and end and where the messages and the society's rituals and structures uh, lead and how do I, how do I, you know, kind of interact with that in a sense is uh, what I'm hearing that, it's some a part of a conversation in therapy.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent example of how we know it's never about just research because people say, well, if we had more data, we would do the right thing. No, it's not just about data because it's not up here. It's in here. And we have all made a commitment to capitalism. Unfortunately, that's what it's about. Because sure, if teenagers had to start school at 12, then parents would have to work less or work different hours. And we don't want to rock that system, not because it works, but because again, it would require for us to think outside the box. But usually what happens is people just go, well, what do you want? Socialism? Is that the answer? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But that is not the only answer. That's only a possibility. I will also clarify just in simple terms. I think it's both. It's both the intrapsychic and the political. For example, you have a patient who comes in, lost their jobs. I do think good therapy, part of good therapy, is to analyze, well, you know, Susie, you seem to be losing a lot of jobs. What is happening? You seem to always get into conflict with people. This reminds me of how you got into conflict with your brother or so forth. That's therapy 101, that is necessary and that should not ever go away. However, what critical therapy does differently and what I argue most therapists need to add on to is the second part of the conversation after we do all that good work. What does it say that we live in a country where the precarity of work is that you are so disposable that you could get fired at any moment, that you have no job security, that now you struggle with how you're going to pay your bills because that also impacts your mental health it also impacts how you show up at the next job and so forth so you could see it's not either or which I think it's a false dichotomy rather than it's always intertwined
0: well it's a movement that you could see as the person as the people see that the system doesn't take care of them now they have no loyalty to the system and therefore a whole you know a whole movement changes about well, I don't care. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And now we're facing that people are can't find good employees or people's employees aren't staying or they're calling right after the COVID. They're calling the shots and saying, oh, no, I don't think so. If you don't pay me such and such, I'm not coming. So it's very interesting where for decades, I used to hear in therapy and with people about Oh my God! I'm such a great employee. They don't see my value, and the conversation is switched into, uh, you know, a, a complaint from employers. That we cannot even get employees; they won't even show up because of what we're offering. They won't even take. So it's interesting how the society kind of like you no. Know, there's a movement into surviving something. You're gonna you're gonna take care of yourself, and people will start taking care of themselves from another angle. So you can see this thing to kind of starts tilting from one extreme to the other um, yes. as the human you know progresses.
1: Yes, and I also think that you know, when we talk about work, our work conditions have not improved. I do see why some workers will push back because, you know, there used to be that joke where you used to work for a company and, you know, 40 years later, you got your watch and you're retired. That is no longer the status quo. People don't have the security of their job. So I could understand why you might push back, you might say, you want me to do this for this little amount of money with no security, sometimes no, you know, um, ins- medical insurance, no benefits. No, it's, it's not worth it.
0: Mm-hmm. You've talked and, yeah. about equity in your book, one of the chapters is, how do, um how do we go about looking at equity and present it within a relationship, then for it to move across other relationships can you share a bit about that
1: sure so equity you know it's interesting that chapter which is the chapter we have about our sliding scale our radical sliding scale um is we talk about we wanted to make sure that everyone from all walks of life has access to good quality psychotherapy services right so, um, and we also wanted the second part of that, we also wanted to make sure that as therapists, we could make a comfortable, comfortable living, right? Because there are a lot of people who dedicate their lives. I was one of them who worked in social service agencies with very low money. And I was always overworked and burned out. And that's not sustainable. And then of course, I was told you know, well, what's the option? You're going to quote unquote sell out and just do private practice and see rich people. That's a false dichotomy. So I was like, we it has got to be something else. I got to do something different. And I did, which what we've created is that at critical therapy, everyone who comes into our, you know, sort of space and comes for therapy pays according to their income and resources. So that psychotherapy hour costs, you know, let's say a dollar or a thousand dollars. And that. Again, that sounds lovely, right? For most of us, like, well, th- yeah, that, that look, that's fair. And yet, when you sit across the couch and you hear $1,000 for that session, you, you struggle with it. And you struggle with it for two reasons. First of all, you struggle with it because although the scale is equitable, meaning everyone pays the same percentage for that psychotherapy hour, the same percentage of their income and resources, it doesn't feel right and you also struggle because I think deep down, we still have this bias against psychotherapy and mental health. We don't value mental health the same way we value physical health. I think most of us, and I challenge all of you who are listening, I challenge you know, even you, when you sit there and you're like, how much should a session cost? There is a cap, we all have a cap. We don't wanna say what it is. For some of us it's like $200, For some of us is $500. But there is a moment where even though it might be equitable, we struggle. And I'll give you an example. I had, you know, I saw this woman for therapy and she was paying, you know, let's say $100. And then she got a promotion at work and made double what she was making. So now, obviously, you're paying $200 for the session. And we sat across each other and she said, you know, Sylvia, I know that it's right. I know that it's fair. It just doesn't feel right. Although if you think about it, it was the same percentage of her income and resources. Nothing changed in our payment, except that somewhere deep down, it felt unfair. And I think that you take that, not just with money, with everything, talk about racism, sexism, equity means that we have to be aware that having some privileges means that we need to show up more responsibly. We need to speak up. We need to do things differently. And that's hard.
0: I also think that what the uh, um example you're bringing um also has to do with a, a with a cultural structure that is put in. So for example, if you look at the same conversation when it comes into religious um giving mm-hmm. percentage like you know you need to pay a percent 10% of your earning to your church, for example, synagogue you know, Mm. wherever, from a a perspective of that, there is no conversation about fairness there because it doesn't have a cap, right? you know? So if you're saying, for example, you have to pay this much money because of your taxes to the government, it's already created a structure as if, well, you know, this much of your um, dollar amount um, or earning has to go for tax and this is what your taxes are for or even on entrepreneurship. So some person would says, I don't wanna pay the tax to the government, but I prefer to pay this percentage of my money to a nonprofit organization or an NGO, which is tax deductible, but at least it's still the percentage. So in those conversations where there isn't a cap and the world only goes by percentage, it seems, um, like that is uh, a structure that is acceptable. But I do get that when you're working on mental health, even health, you're working with insurance systems, you're working with other structures that you're absolutely right that the cap is part of the structure. So you can come down from the cap, but it's very hard to go up from the cap because the whole system is put on from that structure. Before we leave, there's another important factor um, in your book, which is love. um, In how we feel it, experience it, bring it, generate it, express it.
1: Yeah. How we talk about love. We're a society. I feel that we lack conversations of genuine love. We've known how to commercialize love. We know how to talk about romantic love. It's always transactional. You give me this, I give you that. Um, but we don't. We no longer have conversations about love and friendship, love and personal regards. Uh, I say this often. I think one of the deepest things that I've learned as a therapist, I I think it ultimately taught me how to love. Um, is that I've learned how to love a person without being invested in their outcome, where. To be with someone and be a witness to their life, to be with someone and have a positive regard and and really attempt to understand them. That's genuine love rather than if you do this, then I will love you. Or if you achieve this, then you're great. And And I would love to have more conversations about love and to to really sort of, you know, instead of leaning into hate, right? Cause we do that or competition or let's lean into collaboration. Let's lean into loving each other, which could be achieved. And yet we don't do that. And I don't think we really, you know, if you think about children, we don't really teach our children how to do that. We teach them how to be competitive. We teach them how to be the best. We don't give them little stickers for you are the most collaborative in school today. That is great. Wow, you gave, you know, your friend a hug because they asked you for one. How lovely. Here you go, Susie. We don't do that.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, everyone, critical therapy, um, power and um, liberation in psychotherapy. So um, is there anything we haven't shared that you really want people to know?
1: What I like for people to know is that, you know, I would like for them to challenge their therapists if they're going to therapy, because I think most therapists are good people, right? We all do this because we want to help people. I sometimes or more often than not feel that our schools, or institutes have not given us the tools to actually engage with people in a way that's transformational. So I would like for therapists out there to really sort of try to get the skill and to ask themselves, what am I doing in this clinical hour? Am I accommodating my patient to an oppressive system or am I actually fighting for human liberation? And I would like for people who go to therapy to really sort of engage in uncomfortable conversations with their therapists and to bring their many different identities into that clinical space, because it should be a space where you get to talk about everything, not just some things.
0: Absolutely. Everyone, Sylvia Dudkevich, um, critical therapy, and cri- go to Critical Therapy Institute and find more information about her work, about her book, um and uh, her institute. Thank you so much, Sylvia, for being with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I really loved your questions. Thanks for engaging in conversation with me.
0: Of course, and thank you for being with us and everyone who's out there create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye bye. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression. Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life-changing results. The Fujian app gives you her evidence-based treatment in the palm of your hand. Download today.